Good morning, welcome this morning to the part in our service where we look at God's holy word. We love God's word here, it's very special and precious to us. Um, this isn't quite a two-part, Lord. I want to uh, talk uh, this week on inviting Jesus in. Next week I want to talk about the Holy Spirit and the importance of having the Holy Spirit within. Um, and uh, so I want you to turn again the Bible to uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. <laughs> Beginning of verse 13. I'm reading from the session. Now that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our company went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They approached the village to which they were going. Jesus continued on as if he were going from them. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Some years ago, I had a, uh, going back now to the uh, late 70s, so the person concerned um, 
I can't disclose any information from them because they're in glory now, I believe. Um, but uh, some years ago, I had a lady in my church who was in constant deep despair. She wept away through every service. She wept away through every pastoral visit. She was totally depressed and upset. A few years before coming to the church, she uh, um, uh, was happily married, but her husband suddenly died. Now, if that wasn't enough uh, to tip someone to despair, that was just the beginning. After a while, she began to rebuild her life and uh, met someone else, and after a very short relationship, they got married. But her, husband, her first husband left her with a very generous works pension, but I don't know how the rules work, but on marrying uh, again, she lost the works pension. And her new marriage didn't last long. After a little while, the, her new husband up and left her, and now she was all alone and penniless too. And this tipped her over into this deep despair. Life can be hard. We all know that. And sometimes things come along which are just like the old saying says, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's just a little bit too much. And it tips us over into despair. The two we've just read about on the road to the village of Emmaus were in deep despair and sad. They had been faithful followers of Jesus. They believed him to be the Messiah, but they watched as he was arrested, tried and crucified and laid lifeless in the tomb. It's easy to detect their despair from their comments. They spoke about Jesus in the past tense. He was a prophet. He was handed over. He was crucified. We had hoped he would be the one. Their dreams were out all in the past. They'd been shattered, their hope gone, cruelly crushed. One commentator on this passage says, have you ever noticed that some of the saddest words in our language begin with the letter D? For example, Disappointment, doubt, disillusionment, defeat, despair, and death. All of these are summed up in the words of Cleopas and his companion on the, the, the Emmaus road that day. Another writer penned, when you lose hope, you know you're traveling on the road to despair. Hope is a fragile commodity. And when it is lost, it's hard to find again. He goes on to say, perhaps you've lost your hope for your marriage, or your hope for your dreams, or your hope for your children. You lost hope for your health, or the health of someone you love. I want us this morning to look at how the hope of Cleopas and his companion were, was restored. I want you to know that Jesus is alive and he wants to walk with you 
and he makes all the difference. They were so discouraged that you could almost hear them dragging their feet as they shuffled along in sadness. Then, as they did so, a stranger slipped up and began to walk with them. But they didn't recognize him. They were prevented, the Bible says, from doing so. Morrison, in his commentary, makes an interesting little point. He says these were famous apostles. They were simple, half-anonymous followers of Jesus. He says, I take it as a characteristic of the Lord that in all the glory of his resurrection life, he gave himself with such fullness of disclosure to these unknown and undistinguished men. He still reveals himself to lowly hearts. Here is the saviour for the common man. Here is the Lord who does not spurn the humble. You might be here this morning and think I'm too insignificant for the God of the universe to care about me. We all at times struggle with poor self-worth, don't we? But the Bible's full of incidents where Jesus took time with those who were the outcasts or the, the unimportant of society. He went out of his way to stop at a well called, uh, in a place called Sychar because in the heat of the day when no one else was around, a woman with moral issues that was the outcast of a village would come to draw water and he sat there to give her the living water. And he took time for another um, unpopular man, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector defrauding others, who was small of stature, had to climb a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus passing. Jesus stopped and called him down to bring salvation to his house. Or the blind beggar at Jericho, who kept calling out for mercy, and everyone else thought he was too unimportant, and, and Jesus just wouldn't have time for him or be interested in him. And they kept telling him, be quiet, the master's too busy for you. But Jesus stopped, called him to himself, and gave him his sight. Isaiah the prophet said, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. How true that is, how great and awesome God is. But I'm glad the prophet didn't stop there. He went on to say, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, verse 15. I want to tell you this morning, no one is insignificant to God. These disciples had built around them a wall of hopelessness. They could see nothing beyond it. I want to ask you this morning, what keeps you from having a relationship with God? What limits your vision, your understanding? What boxes you in? In this place of hopelessness and despair, as I just said, something wonderful happened. Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. We've all had, I'm sure, special experiences of the 
if we're Christians in the presence of God. I remember a very special experience some years ago. I was taking my car to a garage in Trowbridge. That's quite away from Bath, but I knew the mechanic there. He'd already worked on the car when he was more local, and I knew I could trust him and do a good job for me. And the work that uh, uh, was going to be done would take most of the day. And the garage was out in the country, about three miles from Trowbridge. And I decided I'd walk into Trowbridge and get some lunch. And as I left the garage, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make it a prayer walk. And as I began to walk along those roads, I began to pray. And suddenly, in an intense and wonderful way that I hadn't experienced much at all, the presence of Jesus just came there on that walk, as though I felt as though he were walking right beside me. I just, it was almost like goose pimples on my skin, the, the, the awesomeness of God was there. And I prayed for, for about an hour as I walked slowly to Trowbridge. And there was one important uh, family matter that I'd been praying about that nothing was moving on. And so I prayed about that as well. And then as I approached Trowbridge, the presence just lifted. And I, yeah, I was back to normal. And uh, very shortly after that, that big family problem was resolved in a lovely way. You know, I just, I'm sure you've had experiences like that too, where you could think the presence of God was just there. And I imagine that's how it was for these disciples as they walked along the road. For Cleopas and his companion, they said in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us? as he talked with us. But their eyes were holding. Jesus was to open their eyes. The two disciples thought the crucifixion of Jesus was a huge mistake, a failure. But Jesus showed them it was God's plan. Jesus gently rebuked them for their misunderstanding by saying, how foolish you are and so apart to believe. Their hearts and minds were blinded to the truth. So Jesus was talking their spiritual eyes. It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus began to teach them what must have been one, surely one of the most wonderful Bible studies anyone had ever heard. Someone has suggested perhaps he started in Genesis and talked about the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head, or the blessing of Abraham to all the nations, or the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, or the man who wrestled with Jacob on the way, or the line of the tribe of Judah, or the voice from the burning bush, or the Passover lamb, and so on and so on. The Bible is still God's revelation to you and me. Someone has said, if you want to find more of Jesus, look in his word. Sometimes we want to 
have some special experience or uh, see a sign or, or hear a dynamic preacher. But if you want to know more about Jesus, look in his word, the Bible. Someone has said, the Old Testament says, someone is coming. The Gospels say, someone has come. The Epistles and Revelation says, someone is coming again. Jesus opened their physical eyes to see him, but first he wanted to open their spiritual eyes. They needed to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus said they were foolish and slow to heart to believe the scriptures. Someone said, this is a good point, Jesus knew that between his resurrection and the full establishment of his kingdom would be the church age. His ascension was near it. That meant these two men and all the other witnesses of the resurrection and every generation of believers to come would not have his bodily presence for proof or guidance. They would have to rely on his living, active word to light their path. Post-ascension Jesus would be seen through the inerrant testimony recorded in the scriptures. Jesus opened their eyes. I went to Bible college with a, a friend from my home church named Colin. I took my wife as well for company, but uh, I, uh, I went with my friend Colin. Uh, we, we, we left uh, the church in order at the same time to attend Elam Bible College. In the late 1960s, our church used to hold some special services in a um, high hall in Norwich called the Stuart Hall. And we had one of these special services, and as we were all coming out of the church, Colin and a couple of friends um, had they spent their evening going around the pub, but they weren't Christians at that point. He wasn't a Christian at that point. And they began to heckle us all because they heard the, 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 the last hymn and the, the singing. And uh, one of our elderly uh, members went up to them, began to talk to them. And uh, Colin said to him that this man's name was Mr. Lightning. What a great name. <laughs> and uh, he said to Colin said to him, he said, I don't want anything to do with your Christianity. I don't need a crutch. Through uh, this, the church member said to him, he said, well, what's all that beer you've been drinking all night that you reek of? And, and what's the cigarette in your hand then? And uh, he just witnessed to him and ended up giving Colin an invite to the church. Colin felt so challenged that he came along to the church and that night gave his life to Jesus Christ. He went on to not only go to Bible college, but become a missionary to the South Sea Islands. You see, Colin thought Christianity was a crutch, but God opened his eyes to see that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. Verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer in order to enter his glory? As we said, the disciples thought that the crucifixion was a tragedy, but Jesus said, no, it's God's triumph. 
the Messiah had to suffer and die. Every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest would take a spotless lamb, it had to be without blemish. He would take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies of the temple. It was for the forgiveness of sins. The life of the lamb symbolized by its blood was taken instead of their lives as a substitute for sin. In the same way at the Passover, Jesus was nailed to the cross, whose spikes were driven into his hands and feet. He was lifted up between heaven and earth to give his life as a substitute for sin. That's why John the Baptist had cried out when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dr. Raphael said, The cross was the world's darkest hour because human hatred came to its fiercest focus, yet it was the brightest hour, because divine love came to its fullest flower. At the cross, all the sins of the ages were placed on the heart of the sinless Son of God, as he became the substitute for sinful humanity. This is the gospel, the greatest news the world has ever heard. But you've got to invite him in for him to become the substitute for your sin. When they came to Emmaus, the two disciples invited Jesus into their home for dinner. He didn't force his way in. It looked as though he was just going on. But they kept inviting him in. He waited to be invited in. Verse 30 says, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Look at this verse carefully. Jesus comes in and dines with them. Then notice what happens next. Jesus comes into their home, but he's the one who breaks the bread. It was not customary for the guests to break the bread, but in this case, they surrendered their bread to Jesus. They made him the host, the head at the table. I, like, I heard one preacher put it this way. If I can also put it this way, we must surrender our bread to Jesus. We must surrender totally to him. Let him into our lives. Make him the head, the Lord. In Revelation 3.20 it says that Jesus is standing at the door, knocking. And if anyone, I love that word, anyone, will open the door, he will come in and dine with them. Look at what happened in a bit more detail as they standard. Verse 31 says their eyes were open and they recognized him. Now, I want to get a little bit technical here. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to be clever. My wife will tell you um, I could never be that. Um, but I do like when I study to dig and delve, and so I turn some things up that I hope will be useful. And I want you to see something here. One commentator says, the verb opened 
is in the passive voice indicating that their eyes were opened by an external force operating on them. We know that it was God who opened their eyes. Once their eyes were opened, they recognized Jesus for who he was. But this verb recognize is in the active voice, therefore it was their own action. What he's saying is this. Once they invited Jesus in, surrendered to him, then God gave them power of sight physically, but he opened their spiritual lives to spiritual realities. They were able to perceive those spiritual realities, to understand. It's as though all the lights were switched on. You see that in the word in verse 31, uh, recognize. In the authorized version renders that a little bit more accurately than the NIV because it says they knew him. And uh, the word uh, in the Greek is nosko, which means to know. Um, and, and, and Luke here does something unusual. He puts the little word epi in front of the word to know. And the experts tell me when you do that, it means what you know is full knowledge, to become fully acquainted with him. In other words, what the scripture, what Luke is communicating here is that they not only recognized him as Jesus, they saw him as the living Lord and Savior and all the spiritual realities that flow from Jesus being alive. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's exactly what happened here. In Acts 26, Paul's talking to King Agrippa about his calling, and he says that Jesus told him, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I am sending you to open their eyes. He's not talking about physical eyes then. He's talking about the spiritual eyes, to see and know and understand. That's what happens when we invite Jesus in. Charles Wesley experienced that. He wrote in his wonderful hymn, Along my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. One other point, and I'm just about through. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve doubted God's word and disregarded it and disobeyed it, their eyes were opened, but not to spiritual things, but to their nakedness and shame and sinfulness. In contrast, Jesus turned it all around. In contrast, when these two believed God's word and invited Jesus in, their eyes were opened to see Jesus, to know God's love and resurrection life. The old billboard notice board 
It used to say, the world says, show me and I will believe. God says, believe me and I will show you. These two disciples had that remarkable experience that many of us here have had when we invited Jesus in, had an encounter with him. Our eyes were opened. We experienced spiritual life. You don't have to have an Emmaus Road or like the Apostle Paul with the Damascus Road experience for that. You might have been brought up in a Christian home and it was the most natural thing in the world for you to trust Christ. The important thing is to trust in Jesus Christ, to invite him in, to have your spiritual eyes open, to have your heart enlightened, to know that Jesus is alive. I began this story telling you about a lady in my church who was in utter despair, couldn't stop weeping. I want to just finish that story. She invited Jesus in. And he transformed her so totally, she didn't cry anymore. She was full of joy and happiness and praise to Jesus. That can be your experience too, if you're invited in.